wanted you to know that. I know. I just got fish for it. That's all. All good. All right. It's not a problem. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world I think you should know about. Well, it's the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle, where he answers your questions. But before I introduce him, I just want to mention that if you watched last month, we were kind of joking around saying, wouldn't it be great if Dr. Lyle could do like a marathon where he just answered questions for eight hours straight, because we get so many questions for him. We just can't get back, get to all of them. Some of them date back all the way from, believe it or not, last October. And, um, you know, I kind of was half kidding, but so many people wrote us and say, I'm in for that. So we're actually doing it. Unfortunately, he wouldn't agree to eight hours. He wouldn't agree to seven, six, five, or even four, but he agreed to do it for three hours. There is a slight fee, but come on, guys, he's been doing this like for three years. He's done almost a hundred of these for free, and we're going to get to as many questions as we can. So the link to register for what we are calling the Dugathon, it's a marathon with Dr. Doug Lyle, is below. It will be limited because we're going to be on Zoom and there's only a certain amount of spots. So get your spot while it lasts, and please welcome Dr. Doug Lyle. Good to see you, and you look hey. great. Blue is your color, Dr. Lyle. Glad to hear it. All right. No, I mean, yeah. I, I, your, your show's where I found out to, to have to not shave, too. So this is uh, <laughs> you're, you're whipping me into shape here in my old age. <laughs> Don't you guys think he looks great in blue? I mean, I, yeah, really. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so we'll, we'll jump right into the questions. And the first one is from Chase, and he writes, Dr. Lyle, I've heard you mention that a possible reason that a man might not be attracted to an overweight woman has to do with the fact that in the Stone Age, the only explanation would be that she is pregnant and therefore unable to pass on his genes. Is there a similar explanation for why a woman might not be attracted to an overweight man? Um, I think um, just overweight in general, you're you're, you're designed uh, by nature to look for certain shapes in the world. In other words, you're, you're uh, even two people that are thin, one of them can have a shape that is more appealing than the other shape. Both of them can be perfectly healthy. Um, so basically uh, animals are connoisseurs <laughs> of, of shape. They're very particular about these things. And so, for, <laughs> excuse me, the, I've uh, got a, tail end of a cold. The, um, a friend of mine uh, was a producer in Hollywood. And he said that uh, everybody, you know, when they're 19 years old, should go to Hollywood for a year. And they should, you know, one of the things that they should do is they should sit in on a casting meeting. Because this is, he says, you know, there's nothing like sitting in on a casting meeting. Because they'll They'll, let's suppose that they're trying to, oh, I don't know, cast a beautiful brunette. They'll, that the casting folks will look through, you know, 50 resumes and put them up on the screen. And listening to the people, he said it was shocking to him. Like, no, her chin's too long out. No, sure, her, 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 her ears to turn in a little bit. You know, uh, no, her eyebrows. Oh, don't worry about her eyebrows. She's got everything else. We could shave those off and paint them on and nobody would know. It's like he couldn't believe the ruthlessness of the criticism of looking at extremely attractive people who were being considered to be, you know, on camera for something important. And he said, 
the hilarious thing to him was the women were just as bad as the men. In other words, everybody in there has the eye of the human being has an extremely exacting, precise little preferences. Uh, Don Simons, who is a famous professor of, of uh, anthropology at UC uh, Santa Barbara, said that he went <laughs> into a similar such meeting um, uh, with uh, some big plastic surgical thing. He, he went to a big seminar in plastic surgery as a, as a anthropologist, he was extremely, he's extremely interested in ratios of the face and the bones and how human beings evolved, the particular shape that we have and the differences around the world and different races and all kinds of stuff. So in other words, this is just a physical anthropologist that's interested in all kinds of your things about your bones. Okay. Well, he said he watched himself and he could tell that it was going on with everybody else that literally in case after case, as a picture of an extraordinarily attractive person would come on the screen, he watched his eye immediately go to, oh, look at the left ear, okay? Oh, look at that little, you know, the forehead is a quarter of an inch too, too prominent. It's like he said, it was amazing. He, he, and when he watched it, he thought, there it is. You're looking at the algorithms, the beauty algorithms that sit inside the human being. And human beings will, you know, it, it extends out to what they think of their cats. And you'll have a really, you know, cat that has little legs that are a little too long. And you're like, well, it's a pretty cute cat, but its legs are a little too long. Or, oh, its tail's a little bit too short. Or, oh, its ears are a little bit small. It's like, wow. Okay. So, in answer to your question, are there things about men being overweight that women would find unappealing? Absolutely. They would also find some guy that's in perfectly good condition unappealing for some reason about some ratio that's a little bit off. But excess weight clearly is putting an unnatural set of variation and disturbing the design of the organism. So we would expect, you know, I've heard this I don't know, maybe it's true. There's a little bit of truth in this. And that is that uh, the evidence from evolutionary psychology and cultural anthropology, uh, uh, cultural anthropologists have been very quick to point out and make a bunch of noise that is anti-evolutionary psychology trying to state their case that no human beings are infinitely flexible and they're all different no matter where you grew up. And it's all about how you grew up and what you got used to. And they have... Uh, They've made the case that there are places in the world where when where the women are heavier, it's considered to be attractive. Well, um, that, it turns out, David Buss, who's probably the world's leading authority on human mating behavior, he tracked that down very carefully. And he found that the place in the world where the women are the heaviest, where they are considered attractive as heavy, that those women are lighter than the average American college sophomore, okay? So there isn't anywhere in the world where women are 50 pounds overweight by our judgment, and that's considered, quote, beautiful by the norm of the males in that society, okay? So the uh, I think that <laughs> Buss's, I believe his report was that the women that were considered most beautiful in that society were 5'4 and 120 pounds. Okay. So it, it was something I remember reading it and thinking, 
that's unbelievable. Okay. The um, so anyway, the point of it all is yes, if you're a guy and you got 20 extra pounds on you, it's gonna ding your overall score. Now, the thing that's important for people to understand is there's a huge amount of subjectivity from person to person. So uh, I've had women that really didn't care very much when their mates or gained 50 pounds. Like, yeah, they weren't that wild about it, but it wasn't that big a deal. I've had women that were like, I am not touching that guy. Look at that gut. And I'm like, yeah, I see that gut. That guy's like 6'3 and 220 pounds, and he's 15 pounds overweight, and she's fussy about it. She's like as fussy as any man. I've had that in my career in the last 25 years. So there are huge individual differences as to how sensitive people are about body shape morphology and the misshapenness that is added to the body by excess fat. And so the um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's not just men. Now the thing about men and women and their fat, it's uh, you, uh, men are looking hard at women's waistlines. So they're actually looking specifically at this whole configuration of the curvature around the waist and the waist to the hips ratio, et cetera. That's why a lot of women that are have very heavy estrogen loads, if they gain 30 pounds, they still maintain an hourglass. And it's not, you know, a, a huge percentage of men don't find that unappealing at all. Okay. So it, it literally gets down to where is the extra 20 pounds on you? If it turns out that for some people, an extra five pounds, uh, if you put it in the wrong quote, wrong place, that, pe that people's little detection mechanisms are not happy about, that can ding you 10%. You know, somebody else can gain 25 pounds and it hardly dings them at all. This is, this is just the nature of the, the human being and it's fascinating little algorithms for determining optimal genes. And that's, that's what that whole game is. That, that's, you know, I remember looking at a, a, joke, a joke book and it had, these penguins and they're all, it's got like a thousand penguins in the picture. And they're like, why are they so fussy? It's not like they're going to find anybody any better looking because they all look exactly the same. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, that's because the, but the penguins, they, they're recognizing tiny little variances in how close or far apart their eyes are together or, you know, how they waddle when they walk. It's like, God knows what penguins are looking at. It's the same kind of fussy little variations, you know, to, uh, to, to form that you see human beings are sensitive to. You can, you could, you don't know a good looking chimpanzee from an ugly chimpanzee, but the chimpanzees do, you know, so, uh, no other animal knows a, a handsome guy from an average guy that they, they don't know. The horse doesn't know the, uh, but humans do. And it's like, yeah, it's just the way, the, the way it is. So that's, you know, if you add extra weight, you are, you are uh, tickling, you are misshapening the body away from its natural uh, presentation. And therefore it's, it's going to cost your overall aesthetic score. But there wouldn't have been overweight males in the stone age either, correct? No, no but just the, just the, the fact that it's misshapen, you know, there, there's something wrong with it. Okay, is is what's going on, and so uh, yeah, but correct. But 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 the female misshapen 
notice again, importantly, and, and uh, you know, the insight comes with if the female maintains her narrow stomach, but is curvy, not very much of a hit on her aesthetics. It's because specifically it's the growth of the stomach that the male brain is looking at and saying, aha, there's a bun in the oven. Okay. And so that's, that's why that's going to be part of male natural history is to be fussy about looking at female wastes. You know, Mona, who's watching live, made made a comment. My best friend won't go out with a man with a belly. She feels if he can't care for that, what other health issues does it have? Could it be sometimes people look at it as a health marker? Well, I think that they they absolutely could look at it as a health marker. That would be a modern day human, you know, analyzing that information into the into the thing. It, it'd be like me asking some girl, like, you know, hey, what's your credit score? <laughs> <laughs> it's like some goofy so yeah you could you could look at that and say hey i have learned that if that guy has a bunch of fat around his midsection he's more likely to get diabetes and have a bunch of health problems etc so that makes him a bad risk um you wouldn't you wouldn't have made that inference in the stone age the only inference you would have made was hmm you know maybe there's something a little wrong with you is is what you that's what you would have been thinking. Perfect. Thank you. This next question is from Anonymous. What is Dr. Lyle's opinion on TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation as a treatment for depression? If he does not feel it is worth the money or time, is there any danger in trying it as a treatment for chronic depressive disorder? And if you don't know what it is, I looked it up and I can tell you what it yeah, is. I don't know a lot about it. Um, I uh, the I'm very suspicious of all types of things that mess with the brain. So I think that sometimes things that, that mess with the brain um, can jar a system around and a few people seem to be better off for a while. Uh, but the long-term damage that can be done by dis disruption to the brain is something that I'm extremely concerned about. Um, so that's why Anything like this, uh, I think, is barking up the wrong tree. Now, so psychiatry in general has a um, has a theory. So there have been different theories of depression. You can go back to Freud and mourning and melancholia, and and you know anger turns inward, and from the neo Freudians, and then then you you get all the way to Aaron Beck uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. You know ushering in the modern theory of depression, which is that uh, from the psycholo psychologist's point of view, which is that it's overly negative thinking. Okay, all right, that, that's, uh, th that's one theory. Another theory, uh, I actually object to that theory uh, and largely disagree with it. The, uh, the other gi giant theory is that there's some chemical problems in your brain, okay, all right. The, uh, I have no doubt that there are some rare individuals that have some, you know, they've got some genetically mediated chemical problems in their brain that make them unusual. Uh, so that could make them schizophrenic, could make them bipolar disorder, could make them very depressed. But that's going to be really rare. So the vast majority of depression that we're ever going to see is actually going to be the result of failure. So when, when you look, you know, at the end of a Super Bowl game, 
you look over at one bench and everybody's celebrating and happy and slapping and hugging each other, et cetera. And you look at the other bench and you see a bunch of dejected faces. That should tell you something, okay? Uh, you look at a guy that just, the girl just said, yeah, she's gonna go out with him. And he's sort of jumping around and excited and can't wait to talk to his friends. You look at another guy who's, you know, listening to Frank, Frank Sinatra talk about, you know, you know, one for the road or whatever it is. In other words, singing some sad song about being rejected and being dejected and being on your own and lonely and it's miserable. Okay. So I think we all know that you are happy when good things have happened to you. You are so-so when things are going okay and you are dejected and depressed when things are going poorly. Okay. So it's going to turn out when things go poorly, you're going to be analyzing those things and you're going to be making sometimes legitimate estimates of life. So you're going to be thinking, well, hey, if I'm getting turned down by all these dates, may maybe I'm kind of ugly. Okay. So Aaron Beck would look at that and say, ah, it's that inference that's causing the depression. And I would argue with him. Okay. Aaron Beck, I don't know that he's still alive, but I would argue with a modern cognitive uh, uh, therapist um, that I used to be one of them. And I would say, no, it's not the negative thoughts that are causing the depression. It's the failure feedback that caused it. Okay. The failure feedback caused the negative thoughts that are associated with the depression. But all we need to do is have success. And, you know, we don't have to talk you out of those negative thoughts. In fact, it's going to be very difficult to talk you out of those negative thoughts. What's going to have to happen is we're going to actually have to get successful feedback from a new plan. And when we do, suddenly the depression will go away. So the question, you know, this, by the way, this is going to be one of the things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to be doing a seminar in about three weeks with uh, Jen Hawk and I. We'll do our second seminar called True to Life.us. It's at True to Life.us. Um, and I'm going to be doing a seminar on the nature of uh, it's going to be called my my uh, my talk's going to be called Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. So the shadows of your ancestors are everywhere. They're in every second of your life. So when you sneeze, you're sneezing because some ancestors, you know, evolved the mechanism to sneeze. And when you laugh, you're looking at you're not the first one to laugh, and you didn't learn how to do it. You just happens automatically. Yeah, uh, you're not, you didn't learn how to talk. You already knew how to talk. You just needed a few little elements from the local learning environment uh, from to like, tune the tuning fork, but you already was, it was clearly in there and human beings have been talking for hundreds of thousands of years and they passed on that capability to you. Uh, we just talked about aesthetic stuff in, in every species. You're, uh, when you see people fussy about other people's body shape, you're looking through the lens of evolutionary history. Those are shadows of forgotten ancestors. This wasn't put in you by a brutal media, you know, starting in the 1960s. Uh -uh. No, these, the criticism and the, the exactitude and the precision and the preferences, these are all in the system. The same thing is true for all feelings and all sensations. So if you put, you know, something sweet on the tongue of an anteater, it probably wouldn't like it. I don't know if it does or not, but it probably wouldn't because it eats ants, okay? So it's gonna be sensitive to the differences in the chemicals of the ants. But if you put something sweet on a, on a fruit-eating primate, 
like us. It's like, oh, well, you know, you got a whole bunch of circuitry in there that's all excited about it. If you when you say, oh, really, is it all about individual? Of course it is. You put you put dung on your tongue and you're gonna hate it. But if you put dung on the tongue of a dung fly, it's all excited about it. Okay, so the, the truth is, is that everything, every reaction you have from every sensation that you have and every emotion that you have, these are shadows of forgotten ancestors. They are, they're right there, they're in you as a potential, and they come out when the circumstances are appropriate. So you're not tasting an apple on your tongue right now because you don't have an apple on your tongue. Okay. Okay. You're not feeling thirsty now, unless you happen to be low on fluid relative to your, the amount of blood volume that you have. If you, if you are, then you'll suddenly feel thirsty. Okay. You're not laughing unless you find something that's funny and you're not depressed unless you've had failure feedback. Okay. So when people start saying, well, how would you treat depression? The answer is I'm going to ask the person, where are they essentially failing? And there are five basic domains in life. So there are romance, friendships, trade, i.e. your work and commerce, family, i.e. you also worry about your kids and your mother and people close to you, and your health. Those are, those are the five domains of human existence. But pretty much there's nothing else in life that's particularly important, okay? So if you're standing out in the middle of the desert and it's 108 degrees and it's, there's not, not a living thing in sight uh, and, you know, and you, your car just kind of died, you're not very happy about the situation. You're pretty anxious. Why? Your shadows have forgotten. Your ancestors are telling you we're in trouble. Okay. So the, uh, on the other hand, if the car starts and then you drive into, you know, the Palm Desert Country Club and it's got a waterfall in the front and a bunch of green, you're like, hey, you know anxiety and danger is over. So you're, you have all these potential feelings and the feelings are there to tell you what your circumstances are currently. If a person is depressed, it's because they are receiving failure feedback in one of those five major domains. It could be a mother who's terribly worried about her son that's got problems. She may be everything else in her life may be fine, but that is, is, signaling to her, hey, we're in trouble. I've got a suicidal, emotionally unstable, drug addicted, you know, 17 year old. And sure, my, my marriage is fine. And sure, my friendships are great. And sure, my business is going well. And I'm perfectly healthy. But man, my son's in trouble. And so that woman can be having nightmares and be basically overwhelmed emotionally and despondent and anxious over what? over one of five, life's five major domains. So when I hear that someone is going to use, you know, some transcranial magnetic, you know, stimulation to try to disrupt the brain function, my first question is, what makes you think that the depression is caused by something that is uh, improper about the brain's function? The first assessment should always be that the brain is functioning perfectly well. Like you got to give me incredible evidence that the brain is actually some bizarre brain. It's like somebody that feels freezing cold all the time in 77 degrees and, and has to be in a, in, in a, in a big parka with heaters on all over the, you know, with heaters in their pocket. It's like, huh, that's odd. What happened to your species typical temperature regulation system? 
something is badly wrong with it. Well, I've never seen anybody like that. Everybody I've ever seen with their temperature regulation issues are perfectly reasonable and normal. It's some hot flashes and females are uh, you know, going through menopause or whatever, but it's not that big of a deal. Okay, in other words, their, their, their assessment of what's appropriate for their biology and the feelings that they're having aren't very far off. The same thing is true with depression. There are people that are inherently more depressogenic, i.e. more anxious and more, you know, more sort of self-critical than others. That's certainly true. But, but those people, if they're very seriously depressed, it's not because of the bizarreness of their biology. It's because they're, they've experienced failure feedback and they're feeling defeated. Okay, so the solution is, hey, let's figure out what of those five domains in life are you very puzzled and stymied and you know basically overwhelmed and you've tried and you've failed? And you know what why is it that you think that your life should be here in this domain and in fact it is here? That discrepancy between, in other words, I'm not depressed because I can't go out, you know, and play pickleball and beat Andre Agassi. It doesn't bother, wouldn't bother me at all because my ability to play pickleball is about what I think it is. And if I go out on a pickleball court, I'll get about the feedback that I think I should get. In other words, I'm not that surprised. We're depressed when our performance or what it is that we get from the world is less than we think we should reasonably be able to expect. Okay, that, that is the reason depression exists. Depression was an orchestrated feeling. It's not... It's not a dysfunction any more than thirst is a dysfunction. Depression is a function. It's, a, it's something to tell the organism, hey, we're getting less good feedback than we think we should be getting, okay? So we need to, like, it's like a sprained ankle. You know, a sprained ankle, the pain isn't the problem with your sprained ankle. The pain is signaling a dysfunction, okay? Depression is not dysfunction any more than the pain in your ankle is a dysfunction. The pain in the ankle is saying, hey, we've got an injury here. We need to be careful about how we manage this, okay? Depression isn't the dysfunction. Depression is the signal of the fact that, that we are not getting the resources from a given area of our existence that we think that we should be scoring at a higher level, okay? So, the, it, it then means that the, the therapy for depression is to say, hey, which area is it that you will find your mind constantly ruminating about and that it's upset about and frustrated and feels defeated and is a little bit angry and bitter and even feels suicidal? It's like, that's what I want to hear. Okay. So I'm going to go through the five major domains of existence and I'm going to find out where it is, you know, where does it hurt? Okay. And then we're going to hear about what have you done about that? I, clearly, you've had some repeated failures that have surprised you. Okay, so interestingly enough, uh, this is, again, now people can see why I part ways with cognitive therapy in some important respects. It isn't that cognitive therapy doesn't have its utility. It's the best research, bedrock, you know, the gold standard of psychotherapy in the world for good reason. It's got the best research and the best support. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have its theoretical and technical weaknesses. And so the um, and, and the main technical weakness and the main theoretical weakness and technical weakness that I see in, in common psychotherapy and is that, hey, 
where do you think those negative thoughts came from? They didn't just come from nowhere, okay? Those came from an analysis of failure. That's where those feelings came from, okay? So the person that's depressed is depressed and sometimes chronically because they have failed and failed repeatedly and they can't figure it out. They keep putting some time and energy and they make another bid in some area of the world and it fails again, okay? And then pretty soon they're like, I don't get it. I can't understand why I quote, can't get a job, can't get a girl, can't get myself healthy, can't get my kid on track, can't get myself, you know, some friends. It's like, hey, your, your depression has a reason in the same way that if your ankle hurts, it is hurting for a reason. And the problem is not the pain signaling in the ankle. And this is the problem with T TMJ or whatever they call it, TMS, and with, with, um, and with pharmaceuticals for depression. They are treating the symptom. They are not addressing the problem. And so that's why, uh, as you can hear, the solution to depression, you know, if it turns out that psychotherapy has not helped, well, then you may not have a psychotherapist that's actually gotten to the root of the trouble and, and is, you know, is, is not sufficiently persuasive about a new path of attack on this problem that could actually lead us to success. Okay, so the, um, yeah, anyway, that's uh, an extremely long answer, but it's a good one for, for not only sort of understanding this holistic look at what a feeling is, because that's what psychology is all about is feelings. And also sort of introducing you to the way I think about things in a more technical detail with why, why the way I look at things is somewhat different from my colleagues and the kinds of things that, that Jen and I talk about in our, in our work, which is exactly this. I'm almost afraid to read some of the comments in the chat, but people are wondering if depression can be trauma-based. Oh, well, in theory, it could be trauma-based in the sense that you just got beat up by reality. And so you are, you're licking your wounds and you're a little weirded out, you know what I'm saying? But if we think that it's trauma-based by something that happened many, many years ago, the answer is no. In other words, the, the, the state of the, like if you were super hungry 10 years ago, that, that, that's, you know, then it doesn't really matter to how hungry you are today. So some people, <clears throat> human imagination, trying to put things together, sometimes makes fantastical leaps. And one of the leaps is, well, the reason I eat so much is because my grandmother went through the Holocaust and they almost starved to death. And so, you know, and then she was having my mother and then my mother had me and somehow that passed through and our whole family is all weirded out about starving to death because grandma almost starved at Auschwitz. It's like, no, that is not how psychology works at all. Okay. You can see that the human imagination could conceive that it could work that way. Okay, the human imagination can conceive that in Star Trek, you can beam person down to the planet and then beam them back. In other words, you could see in principle how that could, could happen. And someday, 10,000 years from now, maybe human beings could figure out how to do that. I doubt it, but it's not, it's not impossible. Um, so the, it's not impossible that something that, you know, if your grandmother was starving to death, somehow that could have weaved its way into your psychology, but it doesn't, it's not true. Okay, so it, these, are, these are interesting hypotheses 
and to different people at different times in history, they have seemed more or less plausible. Okay. And so, uh, and the idea that depression could be as a result of some trauma that happened 15 years ago, that is plausible to many people today. Uh, but it's not plausible to me, and it is, it is supported by precisely zero evidence. Meanwhile, the depression that the person is actually having, I can pretty well find out what the cause is, because all I have to do is talk to them about the five domains of life, and I can ask them, where are the one that they're so frustrated about? What is their mind turning to and ruminating about and upset about and depressed about and feeling defeated about? And then when I talk to them, it's going to, I'm always going to find out that they think that they should be here with respect to that domain. And in fact, they're here and they cannot understand why it is that they can't get from here to here. And the, a lot of the inferences are, gee, maybe I'm not as pretty, or maybe I'm not as smart, or maybe I'm not as athletic, or maybe I'm not as good, or, you know, maybe, et cetera. In other words, they're making some negative self-inferences, which incidentally is exactly what cognitive therapy is designed to address. Now, I'm designed to say, huh, that's interesting you're making those inferences. Those are logical possibilities, okay? That could be the reason why. In other words, you may have been having a lower, not as good a feedback as you thought that you were going to get because you've been overestimating yourself because essentially you've got a little naivete or a little narcissism, okay? So that's fine. It's reasonable. Uh, and but and reality's knocking you down and showing you that you can't do that, and then you're not going to be that unhappy about it because then we're going to be here. I mean, this happens all the time. Like, how many how many kids thought they were going to be professional athletes? Well, we actually know. We know that 8,500 out of 10,000 eighth grade boys believe they're going to be a professional athlete. Can you imagine? 85% of them. The truth is. You know, then 15% of them don't think they will be. Now, it turns out that the, all the 1,500 of the 10,000 are right. None of them will be professional athletes. Of the 8,500 out of the 10,000 that think they're going to be professional athletes, one of them is right. <laughs> okay. There are 8,499 boys that are going to be disappointed. Is that disappointed, catastrophic, and traumatic for their life? Of course not. We just find out that that isn't how it is. Okay. So you, you look at Susie across the room and you dream about her being your girlfriend. And then it turns out that a guy with a lot more swag than you, she winds up being his girlfriend. Oh, well, it doesn't, not pleasant to find that out, but all of us are capable of, of thinking that we should be here. And it turns out that we're here. One of life's great delights is that, that sometimes we can wind up here. Okay. And we're like, whoa, it's better than I thought. And people can be very excited. That's like, oh, well, you know, Susie turned out to not be interested, but her friend, who I think is even fancier, turns out she's interested when she found out I was signal and I was interested in Susie. Now, by the way, this never happened to me. But the point is, is that if it did happen, you can imagine the excitement. There's always excitement, but feeling like, oh, it's better than I thought. It's like I was going to negotiate for 68,000 and they said, well, you know, 75 is the best I can do. We can do here. It's like, oh, well, gee, OK, I guess I'll agree. OK, so once in a while, once in a while, we find out we have it better than we thought. Usually not. Usually it's because we're aware that we're aiming at something and sometimes we can't get it. And when we think we should be able to get it, um, 
we have to go through a process of analysis, depression, disappointment, and recalibration, and then sometimes renewed effort with a new strategy. The, um, but no, trauma wouldn't have anything to do with that. So yeah. that, that you know, tra tra traumatic events in our histories are not the cause of any current depression any more than you doing a water fast four years ago has anything to do with how hungry you are today. Makes sense. Right. You know, we, we can never do a question on weight or attractiveness without ruffling some feathers. So Joyce says that she disagrees with your assessment because in many African countries, larger women are considered beautiful. They are not five, two and 120 pounds. And look at the sculpture, the Venus of Willendorf from 30,000 years ago, visualizing the female form and a dramatically voluptuous ideal, a very full, fig full figured fertile goddess. Yes, uh, those figures are, they're pregnant. So uh, people are, are you know, people have considered that to be a wholly, you know, fascinating, unbelievably important thing. That's true. That's not considered sexually attractive. So you don't have any evidence at all that anywhere in the world that is considered sexually attractive. In Africa, when you have uh, larger people, it's actually the larger people, that you, the women that you see are very big in the buttocks, not in the waistline big difference. Okay. So again, these are, these are good points that she's making, but the, 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 uh, but the, the evolutionary psychology is true. Okay. In other words, we have evolved mechanisms for detecting beauty. They are not culturally based and they, they are unbelievably dependent on uh, our ancestors making selections for characteristics that were valuable to increase the statistical likelihood of children surviving and reproducing. So that's why, you know, nowhere in the world is some scrawny male considered to be the alpha super attractive one. It's just that, I mean, that's the joke of Woody Allen, you know what I mean? In Sleepers, uh, when uh, the handsome guy, his friend that he did movies with, that, and he, he looks at snide, snide at the guy says, look at that guy, he never misses handsome class. It's like, <laughs> that, that makes sense to everybody that watches that film. Nobody says, well, gee, that's strange. Where I come from, the little skinny guy is considered to be far more attractive than the big handsome guy. No. Okay. So your the females are designed by nature to be looking for the ratio. Really, it's the opposite ratio of the male's shoulder width relative to their waistline. That's why suits look the way they look, folks. Okay. They don't pad the middle of a suit so that the guy's waist goes out. They pad the shoulders to make it look like the guy has that kind of triangular torso. That is a human universal female uh, handsomeness detection mechanism that is looking for strong shoulders uh, and big upper body strength. And upper body strength is an extremely important feature of what females find attractive in our species. For very important reasons, upper body strength is a large determining factor in how athletic the male is, and therefore whether he's going to be able to defend them and whether he's going to be able to get resources. Okay, and so these are, you know, sorry, they're, you know, we may ruffle some feathers about these things, but you you will uh, the, the the statues that you're see, seeing that you are glorifying the big female that's because they're pregnant. A very very important distinction and. And um, and so, you know, pe people, as you could expect, 
people are going to consider that to be an, a worthy thing. I mean, you're talking about the reproduction of your DNA, for God's sakes. So you could you could absolutely see that peoples everywhere would consider that to be um, profound, profound and interesting and fascinating and important, which of course it is. Thank you. Here's a question from Jennifer. Dr. Lyle, are there any, is there any statistical data showing that intensely toxic, disagreeable tyrants live longer than those with the pleasant, agreeable bell curve? Absolutely not. No, you, you wouldn't expect that would be true. In other words, the, um, the personality characteristics uh, that would be associated with longer life wouldn't have to be to do with disagreeable and agreeable. It would have to do with conscientiousness, um, IQ, uh, to some degree, emotional stability. Um, in other words, <clears throat> people, uh, and also lower in openness. So probably, you know, uh, you know, the more open you are, the more likely you're going to be wind up dead because you, you know, you went on some boat that sank that, you know, looked sketchy, but you, you trusted it because as an open person, open people are inherently optimistic. And so they, they're going to believe that something's going to come good and it's going to be fine. And we're going to go on this adventure and it's like, okay, well now you're dead. So, but that's not going to happen that often. So you're not going to find much statistics in the modern world. The modern world protects the open people pretty well. <laughs> you got to get pretty open. You know, you know, you're, you're hiking around Kathmandu and going off in little villages without, you know, with, with, with thin moccasins and without, you know, without, without a good backpack and no money. It's like, okay, well, you, you may wind up into some trouble, but even very open people in the United States or in, you know, very uh, well-to-do countries, they're, they're, they're not going to get themselves into that much trouble. Once in a while, somebody bungee jumping, you know, has a cord break and then they lose it, but not too often. So the openness isn't going to be that big of a deal, but the big deal is going to be conscientiousness. So, you know, it's going to be people, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I see it less these days because I think tires are just better and cars are newer and the country's wealthier. But 20 years ago, it was not uncommon to see 25 years ago. To, uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking of that because I, I think I saw a lot of these in Dallas when I lived there in the early 90s. See people running around on freeways with the little tiny, little, little tiny tires because their other, their other tires is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, was flat so they, they put on the little donut the little tiny donut tire and they're running around driving around this thing and you realize okay buddy you don't have another spare in your trunk i already know you don't have a spare in your trunk that's why you got the little goofy tire on there and so uh, i i'm recognizing obviously some low conscientiousness because the first thing that you would do is if you ever had a flat tire and you had to put your little donut tire on is you'd get to the tire shop That'd be your first stop because you now now know that you're one accident away from you know being stranded without a tire. Well, you don't you don't happen to see that uh, very much these days, but it doesn't matter. The low conscientiousness still exists, and it floats its way through some other things. So, uh, low conscientious people today, uh, the the average person that smokes cigarettes is vastly lower in conscientiousness than the average person that doesn't. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't some very bright, highly conscientious individuals who think cigarettes. There are, but they're rare. Okay. So if you if you wanted to see one thing 
that would separate higher from lower conscientiousness in the United States today, it would be cigarette smoking or vaping or anything like that. Well, guess what? Those people are going to die sooner, quite a bit sooner, like eight to 10 years. Okay, so the um, so that is, but the agreeable, disagreeable, sorry, the tyrants live just as long as all the nice people. And that's a long answer to that question. Thank you. We gotta we gotta work on speed for our dugathon. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> a little bit. These are practice sessions. Thank you. Yeah. So this is from Victoria. My family does not think what I'm eating or not eating, having recently eliminated all meat products from my vegetarian lifestyle, has anything to do with having or not having migraines. To my surprise, not eating dairy has not been the most difficult obstacle for me. What has been is the disapproval of loved ones. I haven't figured out how to handle their rejection of my dietary choices without having it negatively affect my thinking or causing stress. I don't want to argue or constantly justify my actions if I do have a migraine. We get we get a variation of this a lot. The unsupportive right. family, dietary changes, even when they're positive and the person is doing well. So maybe you could just address her question and then as a whole, why this keeps happening for our people. Yeah, the um, this is, you know, right on my website, there's a lecture uh, for free on the part of the website and it's one of my major lectures that I've given the McDougal program for 15 years. It's called Getting Along Without Going Along. And it goes through the um the logic of what it is that of the question that you're asking. And the reason why it's disturbing for other people is that they are they are hearing in your touting of what it is that you're doing a criticism of them and what they're doing. And so they it makes them look like they are being self-indulgent and and uh, stupid. Okay, so that that's what it makes them look like, and they are going to defend themselves. So they uh, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to learn about it. They're not considering this to be interesting, important information for themselves. They are going to defend their status. Uh, they're designed by nature to do so. This is a shadow of a forgotten ancestor. Clearly, your ancestors were very concerned about what other people in the village thought of them. If that were not true, you wouldn't be concerned about what other people think of you. Okay, this is a characteristic of humans. Wolverines don't have this characteristic. They do not care what other Wolverines think of them. Okay, this is a part of human nature. So, what we need to do is that whenever we're going to make any changes like this, we have to be cognizant of the fact that any changes that we make carry with them an implied criticism of everybody else, okay? So that's important. So we want to reel that back or walk that back. So we the attitude towards us and our migraines is, listen, I don't know if it's going to work or not, okay? Yeah, I'm doing this whole foods, plant-based nutrition thing. It may be useful or it may not be useful. I don't, these guys probably aren't right about everything but I'm just going to try this and see if it helps. Oh, well, you should get Klonopin shots. That'll do it. It's like, well, you know, there's problems with getting Klonopin shots. And so I want to just see whether this will work. You know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. In other words, don't be touting this as a solution for anybody's problem for anything. If you do that, then you are placing this theory above what they are doing and you are inherently criticizing them. And if they don't then mimic what you do, then effectively they are inferring that you're looking down on them as both obstinate, stupid, and self-indulgent. 
okay? Which they are, of course. I mean, we know that this is true, okay? The, uh, but the thing is, is that we, we don't want that. That is going to get a backlash towards you. Okay, they're going to attack what you're doing and make it below what they're doing. And so instead, we have to get out of, this is what I call an esteem dynamic. So we have to get out of the dynamic. We have to say, I don't know if what I'm doing is useful. I don't know that if it's right. It's an interesting idea. It's worth a shot. I'm going to give it a few months. I'm going to be trying this thing out. I'm going to see where it goes. And I don't know if it's going to work or not. That is an unbelievably well-defended um, communication. And even if you screwed it up to now by touting what you're doing and gotten a bunch of pushback, you could say, hey, you could be right. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to just try this. I'm, I'm experimenting. You know, that is a very unthreatening position to be in to them. You're experimenting. You're admitting that it may not be the greatest thing. It may not work at all, i.e., I may not stick with it. You can say, I may not stick with it. See how what happens. In other words, we basically walk back any communication about this being superior. It's not superior. It's, a, it's an idea. Okay, that's all. It's like I'm a marketing guy trying to figure out how to sell oranges. Hey, there's an idea. We're going to call them sunshine oranges. It's like, hey, I don't know that it's going to work. It's just an idea. Okay, so we're going to try it. That's all. That's the position that you want to be in. And if you're not in that position, you need to get there. Hey, I've read this stuff. It's interesting. Not sure these guys are right about everything. Like, make sure we say so. Like, it's probably not right for everybody. It may not work for me. If you do that, the hostility will be reduced dramatically. So that is the solution. Are there uh, ever uh, a time that you can be superior if you have like a personality like Dr. Goldhammer, for example? Oh, yeah. yeah, but most people don't. So this woman goes away and it rattles around in her skull when there's an argument. It doesn't rattle around in Alan's skull as an argument. He just says, well, I don't want to look like you and be like you and I don't want to get sick and die. So that's why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. Hey, they're like, oh, baby, it's like, well, that's just the way it is. Like, hey, you know, prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah. like, hey, if you can say anything that I don't know, that I that you know that, that I've learned that I that I would suspect that you might be right, I'd be glad to hear it, but I don't think you know anything. Like, hey, Alan and John McDougal will just chop people into little bits. But we we don't want to get in some authoritative battle with people. It's not worth it. You know, you have to look at the landscape of your life and you have to realize that that we've only got so many hours and so many people that we can talk to and so many conversations and so many pickleball games. I don't know why, because I'm talking to AJ and I know she loves pickleball. <laughs> it keeps coming up. The, uh, the point is, is that, hey, hang with people talking about things that you're interested in talking about and with people that you're interested in talking to and doing things that you love. If you're in a room and you're in an acrimonious situation with some relative about this, you're in the wrong place. The, the mistake was to be there in the first place. Why is that? Okay, you're, you, you don't get to live forever. So the, these are the hours and the days of our lives, okay? Starts today. So the thinking is, hey, how can I enjoy my existence? I don't wanna go to Aunt Millie, she's a bitch. And I'm gonna have to hear all about this stuff. It's like, well, I really need to be there because of this or that. What, you got an inheritance on the line? Maybe, maybe it's worth having, showing up and having your nose counted. I don't know. I'd be really suspicious about spending any time with people that you don't like. Okay, so 
the uh, bottom line is, is that if we've got an acrimonious situation with people that you do like, for God's sakes, then all you've done is you've stepped all over their feet and you've essentially, in a left-handed way, you've criticized them. So take it back. They take it back. So take it back and say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just running an experiment. Well, we'll see. Oh, you're still getting those migraines out here. Yeah, still. It seems like they're less, but I don't know if they're less. Okay, walk it back. Don't, don't be touting this thing because that's just asking for trouble. One of the things I've often heard you say is whenever there's a problem in a relationship, look to status. Yes, that's correct. And that's exactly what that is. In other yeah. words, we are, we are placing ourselves above them and they are attacking. Okay, We have a status crisis. You must bring yourself back down. Okay, And you, if you bring yourself down, suddenly there's not going to be a problem. Do you think that people that are more agreeable suffer more with this problem? Probably. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, if you're disagreeable, it gets you into a lot of fights and make you really frustrated. Okay, so there's more to it than that. So um, the, you know, uh, agreeable people will, unfortunately, a lot of times they'll go along so that they can get along. You know, that's what we don't want you to do. We want you to get along with people, but not go along with what they're doing. That's why that's why that thing is worthy of a one-hour lecture and a fairly extensive analysis of the problem that distills its way into, hey, be careful of their status. The reason why you're having problems is that you're stepping on their status. And, and the problem is, is this winds up being a funny-looking chicken and egg thing because we're, we are stepping on their status because they stepped on our status. And, we stepped on their, and they stepped on our status because we stepped on their status. Like sooner or later, it's like the Hatfields and McCoys. We've got to go back to 1814 and find out who the hell started it. And so one of the things that we have to do in a situation like that is unilaterally put up a truce flag. That's how we stop it. Okay. And you stop it by not proclaiming the superiority of what it is that you're doing. It's an unknown what the effects are going to be. You don't know if it's going to be helpful. You're trying it out. It's an experiment. That's it. That's how we get out. Good. Thank you. Okay. This is a question from Robert. Dr. Lyle, how do I develop the mindset to do whole food plant-based for the rest of my life? I bet I know what you're going to say. I.e., there is no mindset. Okay. So <clears throat> what, your, what your mind does is it actually uh, runs cost-benefit analysis in every instant of your life. And so it's uh, so obviously if you put in the energy to organize your existence in your kitchen and, you know, have a menu plan and you do enough experiments to find out, you know, seven or eight things that you really like to eat uh, and then you get up the learning curve doing those, then what we're doing is we're reducing the cost of eating the healthy food. In other words, there's less decision making, less uncertainty. We've actually discovered a bunch of things. We're competent. So there's not a lot of energy that needs to be put in to make those things happen. In other words, there's a process of learning. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, how do I get the mindset that I'm going to make all my free throws as a basketball player? Answer, you're going to practice. It's not a mindset. Okay? There's, there's going to be fundamentals and techniques to doing, to doing it properly. You're going to get some coaching. You're going to see to it what flaws that you're doing. You're going to 
have a routine and you're going to practice that routine, that's how you're going to do get as good as you can. That's exactly the same thing here. So that's why, you know, the, uh, Chef AJ's got cookbooks. Chef AJ's got, you know, her, her own personal story that shows us that it can be done. Uh, Chef AJ and I talk about, we have a few principles that we have guide us. And that is, don't be working on your own personal psychology, looking for a mindset. Work on your environment so that the cost benefit that your mind runs every hour of the day is one that leads you over and over again towards good choices. Okay. So work harder on your environment than you do on yourself. That's what we want to do. I, I don't know about you. I've been vegan almost 50 years and I think you've been almost as long. Yeah. I found that people that either do it for ethical reasons or at least have that in place don't seem to struggle as, the, as much as the other people. Yeah, that's probably true. That's because they've closed off an entire area of mischief. Okay, so the uh, I can't, you know, just the idea of uh, of eating like cheese. When I just think about what it is, where it comes from, how it's produced, everything about it, it's the whole thing is just abhorrent. You know, so the um, so I have now had a thousand pizzas without cheese. I'm just I'm happy. Uh, I'm used to it. It's that that's a uh, that is, that's just how I do things. If I go into a restaurant, I'm not looking at the chicken and the fish and the meatloaf or anything else. I'm, I'm aiming for what do they have here that fits those parameters. And I'm making, I'm hopefully they've got one choice or two or three. So yeah, it's a, um, yeah, that, that is a, that's something that simplifies the equation for a lot of people, but, you know, the, but, but still, but the real issue is, what you know? What's the cost-benefit analysis in that case? If animal rights is a big thing for you, your your internal audience can't tolerate you. You know, it can't tolerate you weaving off off path. As far as that goes, if you are not, if animal uh, uh, rights is not a big issue for you, then it opens that door a lot more, and it just makes it it, it just opens up more options of trouble. That's how that works. So yeah. But yeah, work harder on your environment than you do on yourself. We, we can't turn you into Superman who, you know, quote, doesn't, you know, doesn't go that direction because you're, you've steeled yourself against temptation. No, we have to have you in a routine process where you are continually making very, very similar decisions from one day to the next because they're the easiest and most convenient and pleasant decisions that are in your environment. Well, you've been saying that work harder on your environment than you do yourself for the 12 years that I've known you, but people seem to want to find like a, a, a way around that. They right. want to work around. and right. Well, they're puzzled why they struggle. And they're, they're puzzled, like, isn't there some mental Jedi mind trick that will cause me to, you know, get in this beautiful zone? And the answer is, <clears throat> there is, but it's not the trick you think. The trick is to, you know, put yourself around the Jedi. <laughs> in other words, you put yourself around Jedi stuff. In other words, it, uh, our, our, uh, the kid, you told me he's 40 years old, which is really upsetting for me, AJ. And you told me that Adam's son is 40. <laughs> so, but Adam's son, in my mind, will always be about 33. Okay, so the uh, Adam's son is a remarkable young man who has a, an amazing story that he was a, a heroin addict and 
um, amazingly pulled himself out of there. He listened to my lecture on TED, my little 17-minute TED talk on the pleasure trap, and he listened to that thing, and it just slammed bells all over his head. And um, it's kind of an amazing thing. Like, you do this talk, and I didn't even really want to do the talk, and I do this talk, and it turns out to be, you know, a pivotal educational bit in Adam Sud's life. And it turns out I really like Adam Sud. He's a fascinating kid. Kid, he's a kid, AJ. I don't care if you tell me he's 40. <laughs> but anyway, Adam uh, is now a fine speaker. And he tells his story. He's healthy as a horse and just got married. Lovely bride. And Adam uh, says, his saying is, your environment should look a lot like your goals. And when I heard him say that, I had like a chill go down my spine. It's like, oh, the next generation is going to be better than us. It's like, wow, Adam, did you ever encapsulate exactly what I've been trying to tell people? Your environment should look a lot like your goals. There you go. Keep that in mind. That's the Jedi mind trick. Yep. Thank you. This is a, a fun question from Renee. She says, DDL, that's an acronym for Dr. Doug Lyle, you often talk about life being a competition, everybody wanting the same valuable and scarce resources. If that's the case, does that mean our friends are all in fact frenemies? I've always had this suspicion because I've never felt that my friends are truly happy seeing me display some superior fitness indicators. If they are true friends, shouldn't they be happy that I am competitive? Um, I would say this, that it gets much more complicated. So the human mind is uh, spectacularly subtle and complicated. And that is that uh, you can imagine, let's suppose you're, you're, you're a member of a little baseball team called the Timberwolves, okay? Well, <clears throat> you're competitive within that team to play first base or be the pitcher or so forth. But your team is also competing against, you know, the Bengals, and the warlords and the whatever, okay? So the point is, if your team wins, you all get a little halo over your head. So it, so part of it, it's good for us if our friends do well, because it's like, hey, listen, I'm in a pack of people that are cool and successful, et cetera. So part of you benefits from uh, people around you being successful. Uh, and so you are honestly, you are not Machiavellian thinking, oh, that's good for me. You're actually designed by nature to be happy about the fact that people close to you may be successful. However, let's suppose that you're a member of the Timberwolves and you guys just won the little city little league championship and <clears throat> you're really excited. Okay. But within your own team, there's been some competition. Okay, people are paying attention to the individual differences even within the team. So the team wins as a whole, and your biggest competitor on that team like hit the home run that won it. So this guy's going to get the most valuable player. Now, part of you is elated that you won because and you're relieved and happy that he hit the damn thing. And when he hit it, you were excited tremendously. However, in the aftermath, when they're now going to get around to handing out the most valuable player trophy, you're like, Okay, well, you know, I'm not going to get the MVP, even though I was pretty good on our team. Obviously, Josh is going to get it because Josh is the 
big dog that hit the two home runs in the tournament and hit the big winning home. Okay, so part of you can be slightly not so happy about Josh's shining success. Of course, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you can't be his friend. It doesn't mean you can't be excited when he's successful uh, because it's part of your, your more complicated relationship to the environment is that if he's your friend and he's on your team and he's successful, then that reflects well on you or may result in more assets for you. So our relationship with friends is complicated. And there's going to be friends that, that you have very little competitive overlap between them. And in fact, their victories are your victories and your victories are their victories. And there's basically very, very little um, area of discord in that process. Okay. Those are like, you know, some of the best friends that you could ever have. You're, you're on the same team. Okay. The, um, on the other hand, it's, it's not possible for human beings to not recognize themselves as individuals. And all relationships, no matter how good they are, have their limits in terms of how little conflict that they can have. Ultimately, there is some degree of conflict. So your question is a really good one. The answer turns out to be complicated and in fact, variant. So there's gonna be friends that are, you know, uh, Jen Hawk has educated me in the, the language of the day. So frenemy is, you know, this new idea that, that yes, they're really sort of a friend, but they're more of a competitor. And so, you know, if they do well, it actually irritates me. Okay. Even though there might be some value in it for me, but the truth is I feel like it costs me more than it benefits for me to see them successful, or maybe it's just successful in a particular way. Okay, so in a particular way that threatens my ascension, then I may be less happy, you know, more upset about it. So, you know, um, so if Alan tells me he went out there and he racked up and hit, made 25 points in a game, I might be, I wouldn't, but I might be in principle, like not, you know, not as happy about that as if he told me he cleaned out a bunch of people in a poker game and, and you know what I mean? It's like, well, I don't really care. I just assume my buddy turned out to be the big bad poker player. Now that would be a good thing for me because I'm not in that domain. But if I'm in the domain of basketball, I'm not so wild about him getting a bunch of status that and then maybe getting more than me. So it's more complicated than just that specific pair of individuals. It's also the nature of the conflict between them. Okay. So, you know, again, you're um you want to be spending your life with people where you feel very little conflict there and that you actually feel at a gut level that their victories are good for you, for you at best, you know, at worst neutral and at best great, okay? And you want to be seeing that on the other side. Uh, you want to see it reflected in their behavior towards you. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I, I just said my life is built around a few friends and those few friends, you know, have those characteristics very well. And, and I've been able to see the difference in my friends. You know, I've got a half a dozen. And I've seen when some of my, some success of mine stepped on somebody's toes a little bit. And it's like, oh, that doesn't make you, doesn't make you a dishonest, backstabbing sleazeball at all. It just means that I actually stepped on, an, on a sensitive area of their, 
of their competitive self process that I didn't know that I could be stepping on. Okay. And so I've seen that. And, uh, and I've also seen them be incredibly gracious and excited uh, uh, when I might have thought that it might have been threatened. I can, I can think of those instances. So yeah, I can think of one instance where um, a friend of mine's wife was complimenting me on something and I could tell it was making him uncomfortable. It wasn't because the wife was into me. It's just that he was feeling like, hey, you know, what about me? Like, what am I, a chocolate? <laughs> I, I remember that. I remember thinking, oh, that, you know, she, she wasn't thinking anything about it. it great admiration for her husband. But that in that little instance, it was poured on just a little too thick and it was disturbing him. And I thought, what do you know? That guy's a really good friend of mine. He's always behind my success. But right that in that instant, it, it jangled the circuit and it was uncomfortable. So that's the, the, the nature of life is going to have some of that in it. Have you or Alan ever felt this way about each other with a over 50 year friendship? Oh yeah, many times. So, so I would say Alan and I have a probably reasonably normally conflicted friendship. Okay. So in other words, uh, and so it doesn't really sometimes depend upon the personality of the people. It just depends upon who they are and the nature of, of their relationship and how it all works. So Alan and I, uh, I'm, I'm generally very happy about his successes. Once in a while, I'm a little less happy. <laughs> and, and I think that's the, the, same, the same way with Alan. Uh, I, I remember uh, Alan was working on his shot and he was, uh, oh, I can remember another story. This is, this is a true story. So Alan, you know, uh, Alan is a much more impressive athlete than I am. Alan was a, was a champion three-quarter miler, set our junior high school all-time record in it. And he's, you know, he's, he's a strong, physically very strong character, very athletic, had always got the like. John F. Kennedy's little presidential patch. It's like not very many kids got that patch. And I certainly didn't. Um, but but I'm coordinated. I'm a little more coordinated. So I'm going to beat him at pool. I'm going to beat him at ping pong. I'm, I have no doubt I beat him at uh, pickleball. And basketball, we're different, but I'm more coordinated. So the skill parts of the game, I'm better. The strong, the athletic parts of the game, he's better. So it's a little yin and yang there. And it's it's plenty friendly. But I can remember, but he gets frustrated when he can't compete as hard as he works at the coordinated thing. So about 25 years ago, he decides to learn how to play tennis. <laughs> this is a great story. A great story if you're me. It's not such a great story if you're Alan. So he decides he's going to play, learn how to play tennis. And for a while as a kid, I hit a tennis ball against my garage door for a few months, you know, because I've kind of got interested. I don't know, Jimmy Connors won the U.S. Open or something. And, and so I was excited about that. So I got a tennis rock and I whacked it against the wall for a few months. And then I put down a tennis racket and pick it up again. So fast forward like 30 years. So, so now we're in our 40s. And Alan has decided he's going to take a tennis class. And he took a tennis class for like six months. And he goes, hey, well, when you come up, you know, we'll play tennis. And so I said, sure. Okay. So we go out there and he's, I could see a typical Alan, very methodically seeing exactly how they taught him. And I just beat the hell out of him. <laughs> and it was just differences in coordination. 
And, uh, and he was like, I can't believe that. He goes, I remember him actually like, this is ridiculous. Like, I can't believe that we actually have a difference in those abilities that I couldn't make up for in, you know, several months of diligent practice. I can't believe it. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's the way it is, you know? And that's uh, in the same way he could lift me up and throw me around the room is just greater strength. And there's nothing I could do about that either. And then he can, he can run me into the ground, whether it's a hundred yard dash or a mile, I can't possibly stay with that one. And there's nothing I can do about it. So that, uh, so only where those junctures, so, so Al and I, I think are pretty normal. We got little sensitivities and competition with each other, pretty friendly, but there's going to be times when the other guy's success is going to grade on you a little bit. That doesn't mean that, that we're not great friends. It just means that we, we sometimes, one of the reasons we're friends is that sometimes our interests have been close enough that we're competitive in those domains. And so we will go to our graves with a little bit of competitive grit between us in a way that I don't have with some of my other friends. That doesn't make it a bad friendship. It just, it's the nature of those two people in their lives. Yeah. People say they love when you talk about Dr. Goldhammer. <laughs> I love talking about Dr. Goldhammer. He's, he's the, he is the most interesting human being I've ever met. Okay. He is, he, he was the most interesting creature I met on the playground when we were in the third grade. He was instantly very different than the other kids. And, you know, six, you know, 55 years later, he's still, he's still an enigma. You know what I mean? He's still a fascinating, bizarre, immensely talented and, and occasionally infuriating human. And that's who he is. <laughs> I, I find him intriguing. He is. He's intriguing. He is. You keep you off, off balance. Yep. Would you like one more question? AJ, AJ, that I have to say it again, even though people have heard it. The fact that you beat him at his own poker tournament, I, that I'm sure you wouldn't know this, but that was one of those days, like the tennis day. I have no doubt that he had 100% confidence he was going to clean everybody out of that thing. And when Chef AJ rolls in there and beats him, I'm sure he just, he went home and just, you know, stared at the wall for a while and had it quiet through his head. Yeah. Well, I have the purple True North sweatshirt to prove it. That was the prize. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. exactly the kind of thing that, that, that's that bizarre thing where I would enjoy his defeat, but there's not, not to have him, not, not to have him hurt, his feelings hurt or humbled, just have him humbled a little is a, a, a very good thing. Yeah. Would you like to call it a night or take one more question from that? Okay, thank you. I think you'll like this one. This is from Natalie, and she says, Dr. Lyle, when can you actually beat your genes, and when can you not? When can you get used to something, and when not? And could you please give some specific examples or situations from life? That's too big. And in fact, that is the um, my first lecture in the True to Life uh, series. Um, is still available and people can purchase it. Our lectures are, our seminars are one, one day seminars and they're $19.95 to, uh, to purchase them. And the first, the first one, uh, uh, Jen Hawk and I talked about very different things. She talked about women's roles in the modern world and so forth. Very interesting talk. 
my talk was um, really based around the serenity prayer. And, and a concept, uh, the name of the talk is the adjacent possible. And the serenity prayer is exactly what you're asking. The serenity prayer is the question of what can I change and what, I, what can I not change? And God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. That is the great question of life. Where should I be putting energy in because it would be worth putting the energy in? And where should I walk away because I can't change it anyway? Okay. That is the question that sits underneath the, 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 the podcast series, Beat Your Genes. That's what that question means. Okay. When do you trust your instincts and when do you not trust your instincts? That is a, that's a complex question. Many, you know, and, and uh, the, the, the quick answer is, we have to get really good information that overwhelms our genetic programming that says, wait a minute, we're going to have to do this differently because we're making a mistake, even though it's an extremely compelling mistake. That's the story of the pleasure trap. You see all these things integrate conceptually. And so the um, and so you you heard me with this eyebrow raised today when we talked about depression as long as I did that my answer is, wait a second, the instincts are telling us that we've got a failure feedback. The modern environment people are telling you there's something wrong with your brain. And I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna rule out that there's something wrong with your brain, but I know that the vast majority of the time, that's not the reason. That the vast majority of the time, the reason the person is depressed is because of the failure feedback that everything is working as designed. Therefore, the solution is to work through that perspective rather than from a different perspective. The, the instincts may tell you, you know, they're telling you you got failure feedback, but other instincts are telling you, do the easy thing, take the pill, go in and have your brain scanned by a magnet, okay? You know, do shock therapy. The people, wise people that are going to make a bunch of money from it are telling you that it's the easy way to do it. I, it's what's really wrong with you. Careful. Careful. Okay, so this is the answer to the serenity prayer is to be knowledgeable. Okay, that, that is the only hope we have for making the decision, the correct decisions in the serenity prayer. What can I change? What can I not change? And the wisdom to know the difference is actually the knowledge to know the difference. Love it. And that, that was a wonderful presentation you gave. I was there live and it's great. People can watch it on replay. And I, I believe I have the links to that as well in the show notes. Fantastic. And the new All one's right. coming up, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Right. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyle. This was very enlightening. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, AJ, as always. Always. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 9 a.m. Pacific time tomorrow for Kathy Hester's Vegan Kitchen. In time for Cinco de Mayo, she'll be making an oil-free and nut-free mole and an alcohol-free margarita. Take care, everyone.